Hello to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners out there. I hope all of you have had a good weekend and that um, your week has started off on the right footing. Although it is hard to believe that uh, 22 years ago, um, September 11th of uh, 2001, an event that that none of us whom were old enough to have remembered happened, an event that most of us never thought could have happened, and yet it did. Um, I remember um, I was just in the uh, early stages of my uh, senior year of college, and I was having breakfast in the dining hall lounge. I was uh, dining with a couple of friends of mine, and one of them had learned or had found out recently that a plane had crashed into uh, the North Tower it was. And so I was under the assumption, and my friends agreed with me, that perhaps it was a... um, and that it was a um, Piper plane, you know, one of those private planes, um, you know, like a two, uh, two-seater, uh, that, uh, that the plane had crashed into the tower, uh, perhaps because the pilot himself uh, could have had a heart attack. I, I know all that sounds very far-fetched and um, crazy, but, but I didn't know any better at the time, and I don't think that uh, most of us would have ever thought in our wildest dreams that a Boeing 737 or 747 or maybe 777 did in fact crash into uh, one of the World Trade Towers. Well, after I finished breakfast, I went to my class, and where I went to class, uh, the building wasn't far from the dining lounge, so luckily I didn't have to go three or four blocks of uh, just to get from point A to point B. Uh, where I went to school, it's a uh, it's a small college, but you know nonetheless, um, I do have to be reminded that in 2001, while yes, there was the internet, um, there was no such thing as social media, and even when you did get the news about something that was uh, major, it really was considered uh, it was still considered breaking news, but it was breaking news where you actually processed everything right away before everybody else um, lit up their phones with an opinion right away. So in other words, you you got your um, you got your news from what would have been a reliable source, not to sound political, but that's how it was. You didn't um, take to the sky with uh, Facebook or Instagram or Twitter and start um, posting whatever it was you felt about without hearing what the experts had to say. So by the time I made it into class, that's when I learned that a second plane had crashed into the other tower, and then I realized, along with everyone else, that this was no random accident, that um, America was under attack, and um, it was very profound. Um, my wife and I had uh, were watching um, a program uh, while we were having dinner just a short while ago, and it had to do with uh, United Flight 93. I have uh, mentioned before from uh, other podcast um, episodes or uh, regardless of topic, since uh, mid-July, uh, long story short, when my wife and I w- were on our way to Ohio for vacation, we stopped in uh, western Pennsylvania in uh, Somerset, where uh, the Flight 93 Memorial is, uh, Somerset, Shanksville, about 80 miles southeast of Pittsburgh. And I was really um, 
blown away in this documentary that I saw that, you know, how technology uh, paved the way for uh, giving the passengers the advantage over the hijackers. The passengers were able to make calls, calls left and right to loved ones, obviously knowing that this was going to be their last, um, their last day alive, but also just to tell their loved ones how much they love them. Um, my wife and I recall listening to phone calls at the Flight 93 Memorial v Visitor Center. You, you want to talk about heart-wrenching and, um, and um, heart-wrenching to me is probably the best word. I, I can't imagine having been one of those um, passengers aboard the plane and having to call my spouse or my spouse calling me to say, hey, um, I just want you to know that I love you and um, that I might not be coming home alive, but just know that um, that I, I want you to be safe and all that. So I, I can't imagine making calling up my loved ones for the last time, telling them how much I love them and knowing that I had two choices. I could either be a part of something big and, and fighting against, fighting back the hijackers, or I could let evil prevail and let those hijackers crash our flight into the uh, White House or the Capitol. Thank heavens that uh, 40 uh, men and women, along with the crew, took matters into their own hands and fought back those four hijackers to where, um, to where they did the improbable. They saved countless lives, and you can see it firsthand for yourself. There is a uh, rock uh, out in the uh, field of the Flight 93 Memorial that uh, tells you that tells you right away the moment of impact when the plane crashed into that spot. It left a gigantic crater. Uh, the crater is no longer there anymore, but you can still see pictures of the crater inside the uh, actual museum itself. I can't imagine having lived in uh, Somerset in Shanksville, PA, uh, 22 years ago, and, and witnessing a loud sound, and all of a sudden you hear, you see um, lots of smoke. You, you see smoke coming up, billowing up into the skies. It's like, oh my gosh, what, what just happened? It wasn't an asteroid that came through. It wasn't a comet. I mean, this, this is real life. An airplane crashed, folks. But as tragic as it was that those men and women lost their lives, we owe them a huge debt of gratitude knowing that they um, saved countless other people. Also, uh, institutions, uh, buildings where government needs to be able to operate, not just on a daily basis, but that government itself just simply needs to be able to function in a time of crisis because if the White House or the Capitol had been taken out, I don't know how government would have been able to have uh, functioned even more so on 9-11 knowing that one of the planes had crashed into the uh, Pentagon. So uh, the bottom line is is that uh, I did watch some documentaries today. My wife and I did, especially when we were home having dinner. But we also realized that as powerful as 9-11 was and must never be forgotten. Um, we also need to um, focus on stuff that's relevant. I'm not trying to uh, sound uh, selfish, but I also realize that um, that after you've uh, watched something that's gut-wrenching and to a degree horrifying, that 
you probably do need to do something that's more positive. And my being on the air, um, picking back up where we had left off from the previous nights, um, or from a couple of nights uh, from the last podcast segment episode, uh, I need to be back on the air um, with you all, my fellow listeners. And I think those who made the ultimate sacrifice on 9-11 from Flight 93 would want me to be doing the same thing. I I think they would be very appreciative to know that uh, my wife and I are just some of the uh, thousands of visitors whom have uh, visited the Flight 93 Memorial and seeing firsthand what sacrifices they've made. So for those of you who have not been to the Flight 93 Memorial in Somerset, Pennsylvania, I strongly recommend that you go and when you leave there, you will know all the more just how uh, powerful the, those sacrifices were. You probably already know, but when you go to the museum and you see firsthand, it, it, um, it gives you a better scope. It gives you a whole um, better dimension of appreciation. That's, that's where I'm coming from. But anyways, I think it's time for us to get the show on the road. Uh, we have a lot of ground to cover, so we've got to uh, make sure that uh, whatever uh, needs to be discussed in this uh, next podcast segment episode to a signal victory, the Lake Erie campaign, 1812 to 1813, gets covered. So I'm ready to go, and I hope that you all are as well. So here we go with our first leadoff question. Did um, Robert Barclay and Oliver Perry each order, or I should say, instruct hours of exercise on their ship's guns. Of course, when I think of exercising, I think of, you know, doing something or getting some kind of physical activity in for 30 minutes at minimum. But as for um, instructing hours of exercise on their ship's guns, to me, it would have to do with um, practicing how to go about um not just assembling the guns, but how to um, properly um, use them when actual uh, combat takes place. So the answer is yes. Uh, Lieutenant Barclay's men practiced, or I should say rehearsed, two times a day for up to an hour each time. So they probably would have rehearsed in the morning, and then in the afternoon they would have uh, done their second rehearsal. Whereas uh, Oliver Perry's crews practice daily, but there, but Perry's forces focused on firing upon targets. Believe it or not, the targets they focused firing upon were empty barrels. Now, why do you think Perry's uh, forces would have focused on um, firing upon uh, targets like empty barrels? This was meant to. Um, improve long-range shooting more accurately. So you need to have an object that your um, crew can um, fire upon, but you want to see just how accurate they are. You know, it's one thing to be accurate from short-range firing, but we want to see how you can do long-range firing, but the best way to um, the best way to go about practicing is using empty barrels. You know, uh, as they say, um, Practice makes uh, perfect, if that's the right way to say it, but sometimes you've got to be creative in terms of how you go about using whatever it is to your uh, disposal or to your um, advantage in order to go about getting uh, results through um, 
drill procedure, or I should say practice and all that before, as um, in the lead up to uh, actual uh, combat. On top of uh, endless exercises pertaining to the ship's guns, other repetitious acts were performed regularly. What other kinds of repetitious acts do you all think would have been performed regularly? How about um, one one thing that actually came to uh, came to a surprise for me, but but it did um, exist. How about uh, the crew having to tend to the vents? Vents, folks, they're openings. You know, when we think of vents. You know, we think of the vents that for AC and heating purposes. Well. You know, vents did exist back then on these um, wooden ships. They may not have been as modernized as we know uh, vent AC and heating vents are in today's time, but they would have been tending to the vents, a.k.a. openings that would have allowed for air, gas, or liquid to leave from a confined space. Uh, the crew would have also been cleaning what were called um, bores, B-O-R-E-S. I'm sure some, most of you may not know what bores are. They are the hollow part or the hollow parts inside the gun barrels. The crews would have also been cleaning the cannons. How, do you, how would you go about cleaning the cannons? Through, um, through what's called swabbing, a.k.a. using a sponge. You've got to clean up the residue you have to clean up any debris inside the cannons because if you don't clean up the inside of the cannons, folks, and you want to use the cannons for the next time, expect some dire uh, consequences. In other words, misfirings, uh, a cannon could explode internally where it could you know, kill two or three people right in front of the cannon. Uh, it's one thing to um, work operate a cannon, but you better know what you're doing. Everybody's got an assignment but it's not something you, it's not a toy, folks. I mean, it's not a light switch that you turn on and off. You know, think of uh, operating a cannon as like, you know, operating a car in a way. All the different uh, mechanical components, uh, to say the least. So, yes, you've got to, um, you have to clean out the, um, the hollow parts, being the bores, the inside of the gun barrels, as well as the cannons through, um, swabbing uh, in terms of using a sponge how about um, inserting um, powder charges missiles ramming weapons down forcefully to placing gunpowder into the pan of the firearm just before firing so there's really never a dull moment folks of exercises but you know if you want to have the best crew if you're a, a commanding officer and you want to have the best crew, they need to be performing daily. Yes, repetitious acts of, um, of performing essential duties might be boring, but come um, actual battle time, the more uh, practice you put in, the better you're going to be prepared for when it comes to this actual, for when it comes to actual uh, fighting. Did regular drill practices build character amongst both sides? Matter of fact, folks, it did. Drilling onto itself helped mold sailors and marines into men. We're going from boys to men, folks. So, yes, drilling onto itself helped mold sailors and marines into men 
whom became more obedient along with being more reliable. So it's one thing to um, get drilled. It's one thing to... Um, how do, I, how do I say it? When you get drilled, folks, not only is the drill instructor trying to build character into you, it's also mental toughness, survival of the fittest. Not just from a physical standpoint, but from a mental standpoint. You know, there was a time when I wanted to be in the military. But um, then I realized to myself, well, it's one thing to put on a uniform but if, you know, it's one thing to wear a uniform, but if you uh, don't have what it takes psychologically to be in the military, if you start flinching, breaking down, losing your composure, then the drill instructors have you. They have you cornered. They know that you are um, live bait. So if John Smith breaks down, loses it all the time, He's not going to last very long. They know that he's not, the drill instructors would know that he's not an example of survival of the fittest, not only from a physical standpoint, but from an emotional standpoint. So it's a, it, 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 it goes both ways. But thank heavens, um, the men on both sides, uh, the British and the Americans, have um, understood the importance of, of the drilling that's taking place in order to in order for what is about to lie ahead drill tactics eliminated all things um, idle you know when one becomes idle it's like they're wasting time so drill tactics by eliminating all things idle drill tactics alone kept crewmen on both sides occupied but it also blocked out such things as drunkenness to desertion. Think about it. If you have enough things to do to keep you occupied, the last thing you're going to want to do is touch a bottle of alcohol or even start talking to other crewmen about plot to um, do something mutinous or engage in an act of mutiny going against the captain. Although uh, training or uh, drill tactics being performed daily was good, officers on both sides constantly conducted practices under the potential threat of actual naval warfare combat. So, you know, in their mind, the officers knew that, okay, yes, we can train left and right all we want, and we'll continue to do it, but we have to train as if the enemy is going to launch a surprise attack on us. We have to be ready to go at a moment's notice. If we get attacked, we've got to know how to function. We've got to know where where our assignment, what our assignments will be. We've got to know how to be prepared when it comes to launching a counterattack assault back. What I found interesting about Oliver Perry's arrival into Lake Erie was that he was he didn't arrive when he was supposed to have. It had nothing to do with being lazy, uh, reckless but he arrived months behind the original due date. So his intentions were to uh, recapture Detroit, but the uh, goal behind recapturing Detroit became all the more challenging given by the time uh, Perry arrives, um, the fall season is just around the corner, 
which meant that come uh, fall, um, greater challenges along the um, lakes, and in this case being with Lake Erie, are going to become more um, visible or prevalent. Such challenges as um, lake storms. And with lake storms, folks, what does that mean? There's potential for uh, loss of vessels, and not just loss of vessels, but perhaps loss of vessels and crewmen. So for Oliver Perry, he knows now that he's on all the more borrowed time there is. You know, I don't have time, I don't have a whole lot of time at my side, but I have to do everything there is to be prepared to, to be ready to go. As for the enemy, uh, the British, they've got plenty of time on their side, except their uh, fleet that they have at their, um, at their helm, none of this fleet has ever been tested before. So they may have time and the experience, but, uh, but that doesn't uh, mean it's a, a, a definitive um, safe bet. Did Oliver Perry go about observing the British at Fort Malden during August 24th to the 25th, including September 1st. Believe it or not, folks, he did. But Lieutenant Barclay held his ground firm by not falling for Perry's bait. In other words, um, I'll tell you here in a moment, on September the 1st, the American fleet changed its course back and forth repeatedly up to five hours straight. They were hoping that um, Lieutenant Barclay would um, bring some of his vessels out and try to uh, engage in some uh, skirmishes on the water. But given the, the direction of the wind itself blowing from the southwest, Lieutenant Barclay knew his fleet would have come under enemy fire from Perry's long guns, being the 18 and 32 pounders, as well as coming upon waters where shoals, you all have probably heard of what shoals are, Think of shoals as natural ridges or sandbars. The shoals pose all kinds of dangers to ships. No matter how big or small they are, they can do they can uh, put a bad um, they can do a bad number to a ship, especially from its bottom. The whole, especially um, Great Lakes ships, have been known to um, many of them throughout the course of history have been known to accidentally make their ways into shallower waters where they uh, strike a shoal and probably don't even know that they've struck a shoal but keep on going only over time to when the waters get really uh, tense with waves building up that when the ships themselves are so stressed that, um, that the ship itself ultimately bottoms out in the water to where the ships break apart and then you have loss of life on top of it. So, so for uh, Lieutenant Barclay, he was smart enough uh, for several reasons, knowing that, for one, the course in which the wind was blowing from the southwest, his fleet would have come under enemy fire from Perry's long guns, but also knowing that if he took, if he took any chance with sending one or two vessels out, that if they hit a shoal, or what we call a sandbar, then um, he really would have been up a creek even more. HMS Detroit, though, by uh, late August, early September, is still not ready for combat, given Lieutenant Barclay 
is still in need of more experienced sailors come late August and into early September. You know, it's one thing for your for a ship to not be ready, but if it's the flagship that's not ready for combat by late August, early September, then you have to ask yourself, when is the flagship going to be ready? So it might be fair to say that even Lieutenant Barclay is under borrowed time with regards to his uh, signature flagship vessel. Uh, what surprise came about after September 1st impacting Perry's crew? Many of you are going to find this to be very surprising, to be a surprise, but it's not a surprise for the right reasons. But it was something that I had to be reminded of uh, because it doesn't make a difference probably what time of year a surprise like this can happen, but it did take place. Well, it just so happens, folks, that uh, right after September 1st, many of Oliver Perry's sailors came down with bilious or bilious fever. That's spelled B-I-L-I-O-U-S, bilious or bilious uh, fever, which resulted from having such symptoms as nausea to vomiting. Pardon me for mentioning that, folks. I know that doesn't sound very pleasant, um, but we do have to be reminded, folks, that people in the 19th century and before dealt with um, sicknesses that, um, that are still common today, except it is fair to say that in today's modern-day world, we do have some more um, medicines at our disposal that are probably uh, better suited to uh, treat these kinds of uh, symptoms. But at the same time, we do have to give credit for those whom were living um, in the 18th and 19th century. Whatever um, medicines or um, herbal remedies they were able to uh, come up with back in those days, and if they did work, then the least we could do is give credit to those people for at least um, doing something to modify the problems then. But anyways, yes, many of uh, Perry's sailors came down with bilious fever, that resulted from having uh, such symptoms as nausea to vomiting. And it was getting bad, folks, to the point where 20 to 30 men were affected per day. If you get 20 to 30 men uh, affected per day, folks, I don't know how that's going to impact um, the overall well-being of uh, crewmen um, availability come the actual day of fighting, come actual combat, rather, I should say. But... By the time it was all said and done with folks, there were 200 total cases of um, bilious fever. And by September 9th of 1813, 87 sailors, folks, were unfit for duty. 87 sailors, folks, and if you think that's bad enough, how about the surgeons from the Lawrence and the Niagara, the two uh, fly American flagship vessels? Their surgeons are sick. Gosh, this sounds like a modern-day um, pandemic. Now, of course, when we think of pandemics, we think of thousands of people coming down with um, with a with a illness, like what we saw three years ago with COVID. It might be fair to say this is a smaller version of COVID. I don't know why I say it, but think about it, folks. You know, people are in tight corners. There's not a whole lot of room for moving around. You're sharing uh, beds. Uh, you don't have your own bedroom. You certainly don't have your own bathroom, for goodness sakes. But you've got to think about what kind of things you might be exposed to. Um, hygiene is still not 100% great. 
you know, there's no such things as laundry machine, modern day laundry machines. So you, you might be lucky if you get, do a bird bath once a week, uh, to say the least. So it's bad enough that uh, 87 sailors are unfit for duty, including uh, surgeons, the chief surgeons of the Lawrence and the Niagara. And if there's nine um, American vessels in all, that means almost roughly 10 sailors per vessel. That's the way I see it, that 10 sailors per vessel are unfit for duty. Now, let me ask you this. If the chief surgeons from the Lawrence and the Niagara are unfit for duty, do we have a surgeon? We do, folks. The medical service for the entire fleet now centers upon one surgeon in Dr. Usher Parsons, the junior surgeon. Now, this guy can't be on every vessel at one time. So, I almost have to wonder if he's the only surgeon available, he's going to have to um, instruct um, officers from the other vessels on how to go about um, tending to the wounded in the midst of all this of all the cannon firing that would take place. Well, and how about this one, folks? Oliver Perry himself was not immune as he came down with fever, and believe it or not, Oliver Perry has come down with fever. My gosh, if the if the head commander is coming down with fever, then how is how is the American squadron going to function? Well, there is good news to report, though, that he has been confined to his personal bed. Okay, so basically nobody else is to come near him except probably the uh, junior surgeon. September 9th, though, Perry is well enough to issue a general order advising that all future drinking water going forward was to be boiled as a means of curtailing further additional fever cases. Well, to me, this is the right step, a step in the right direction, I should say. You know, I don't know um, what the long-term results will be, but I think it is fair to say that boiling water is better than doing nothing. What ensued, or I should say came about, on the evening of September the 9th? British ships lifted their anchors by navigating down the Detroit River onto Lake Erie. Lieutenant Barclay made the decision on the grounds of logistical challenges to proceed forward onto Lake Erie. As much as I hate to say this about Lieutenant Barclay, um, he's really stuck between a rock and a hard place, and I think uh, it's fair to say that what we had discussed from the previous podcast episode that it really showed. Uh, Lieutenant Barclay's current dilemma was further complicated by lack of military intelligence. He's unable, he wants to send a schooner vessel out onto the waters for observing Perry's forces, but he's not able to. He's not able to because he's, it's out of fear that if the vessel itself gets captured, not only does he lose crew aboard the schooner vessel, but he loses valuable supplies and he, and then the crew aboard this schooner vessel would pretty much have to uh, surrender all um, intelligence to Perry and um, Commodore Isaac Chauncey, as well as uh, Lieutenant Jesse Duncan Elliott. So, instead of sending the um, schooner vessel out, um, 
Lieutenant Barclay does send a canoe instead. How Now, as good as this may be that a canoe gets sent out, the unfortunate thing is that per each day going forward, without supply ships, this meant greater reduction behind means to feed the masses within Amherstburg along Detroit River. Think about it, folks. You know, you've got an army to feed, and you've got a navy to feed, and then you've got thousands of Indians whom you've promised protection for, that if you win this war, you'll create a buffer region in the United States, being the Northwest Territory, that will prohibit all further westward expansion west of Ohio. How can you fulfill these promises when thousands of people's lives are at stake? When you have to think of the military, you have to think about civilians in Amherstburg, and then you've got the natives. It's a no-win situation, really, in my opinion, for the British. Uh, how about this question? Although Oliver Perry had nine vessels to his advantage, whereas Robert Barclay had six did either side triumph the other per their main features? Uh, no. The American fleet had 54 guns with the weight of metal, around 1,528 pounds, and a, with a total uh, simultaneous firing weight of 912 pounds, whereas the British had 63 artillery pieces with a total weight of metal at 883 pounds and a firing weight at 494 pounds. Here's something important, though, to think about. The numbers I just mentioned, yes, seem impressive, but numbers alone can't tell the story. They can't automatically tell you who will prevail and who won't. But weaponry itself required to be balanced against the ship against the ship's size. Weight alone couldn't exceed what the deck itself could handle. More weight, folks, meant impacting the ship's center of gravity hence leading it to capsizing, or I should say overturning. So you just can't um, place whatever it is you want on a ship. You have to make sure that whatever it is you're placing aboard the ship in terms of cargo and other provisions, or not just provisions, but um, anything uh, weaponry-wise, does not exceed um, the ship's size in terms of its weight. Because if it does then yes, you run the risk of the ship capsizing or overturning. It's a very delicate balance, to say the least. Uh, what was first produced during the late 1770s at a foundry in, in Caron, or Caron, Scotland? I think Caron sounds better. Uh, what was first produced during the late 1770s at a foundry in Caron, Scotland? That's spelled C-A-R-R-O-N. How about the Caronade? A carronade is a short, large caliber cannon whose tube was much shorter, which meant it had greater means to fire more than twice. The weight of a shot of a long gun per the same weight. Carronades were able to be bolted to the deck with wheels attached for aiming at different angles. While it may have been a small range, the carronade saved money. Not just saving money, but how about cutting down on storage space? Also cutting down on loading time spent. Yes, you may have, it might be small in size, but 
small in size can still inflict um, some big um, damage upon enemy ships. What were the key elements behind determining similar capabilities of both squadrons, a.k.a. fleets? What do you think were some key elements? How about the accuracy or measurement of a ship's firepower, including the types, including the types of weapons involved? So uh, determining broadside power. Now, most of you are thinking, what in the world is broadside power? Well, broadside power, folks, pertains to the firing of all guns on one side. So determining uh, the broadside power, a.k.a. firing of all guns on one side, was not about dividing the number of guns in half, along with adding up their weight. Most heavy long guns, being the standard type of cannon mounted by a sailing vessel, got placed onto pivot mounts. Now, when we think of pivoting, uh, you know, some t oftentimes I think of like basketball, for example, where you've got a, you know, when you are dribbling, you want to make sure that your feet are pivoted properly. You want to make sure that you know, your feet are pivoted uh, so that you can um, get that right shot off to where it'll go into the net, whether it's for two or three points. Um, pivoting is all about making sure that you've got your, you know, when you're playing basketball, that your feet are balanced properly so that you know uh, how to go about rebounding effectively to um, making the shot. Um, so, yeah, so usually when we think of pivoting, we think of uh, sport for sports purposes. But in uh, naval combat uh, warfare, uh, pivots are uh, mounts that um, allowed guns uh, to be mounted where they could move back, forth, and sideways through an angle of around 270 degrees based upon the type of vessel which the guns themselves were mounted on. Pretty uh, revolutionary for its time, folks, to be able to um, move the guns back and forth and sideways to where you can get that perfect shot to uh, strike at the enemy. Perry's uh, small gunboats, being the Ariel, the Scorpion, the Tigress, Porcupine, Summers, and Trip, all had mounted pivot guns, with most being 32-pounder long guns. Many of Britain's long guns were smaller sizes, which meant Americans had a better firing advantage in weight of metal, fired ranging from 240 to 194 pounds. Lieutenant Barclay's carronade total comprised of 16 24-pounders, two 18-pounders, 13 12-pounders, all mounted on one side, being one side of the ship. Were they um, placed on pivots, folks? No. The, the beauty about the pivots is that you could place them anywhere on the ship. They didn't have to be confined to one side. So, if, if you don't have pivots, then you really are at a bad disadvantage. August 20th, um, Oliver Perry recommended uh, courses for two types of strategies. Uh, number one, um, number one pertained to arranging the order for sailing in two columns with Briggs, Lawrence, and Niagara leading each line. 
Number two was a line of battle where flotilla would be placed in a special order. The irony to this, folks, is that Oliver Perry kept all options open, but strategies that I just mentioned a second ago were not, uh, he didn't use. Oliver Perry, however, expected his top two flagship vessels to go up against Barclay's big guns, HMS Detroit and Charlotte. Did Oliver Perry uh, go about providing any important orders to his captains leading up to September 10th? Uh, turns out he did, folks. He went about giving two orders, and these are uh, two unique orders to say the least. The first order had to do with what's called a written directive, which was to inform officers of what was to be expected regarding their overall duty performances. So when we think of uh, what's called establishing a line of battle, to me that's a basic maneuver or tactic where opposing fleets emerged in a single line from side by side or what's known as parallel course and would go about pounding away at any ship that appeared through its uh, gun port, uh, a gun port being an opening in the side of a ship's hull where the where uh, the guns themselves could be fired now whenever a captain broke the line it's fair to say that bad results would come about well one bad result that could come about if in the event a captain broke the line would have to do with uh, providing the opponent with greater means behind breaking those lines through use of deadly firing via uh, cannons Perry uh, would, went about issuing his uh, command with the goal of keeping his own line preserved to staying close to the flagship, which would give him control of the battle. His second instruction for his commanders pertained to engaging the enemy up close, but doing so at half cable's length. Now, I know most of us, when we think of cable, <laughs> we think of television, but it is fair to say that when we do think of cable, we think of um, telephone power lines. You know, it's one thing to say that um, that we've lost power, but we can also say that we've lost uh, cable, being electricity. And we don't, and who knows how long that the um, power will ter be turned back on. But in terms of nautical um, terminology, what cable length is referring to, folks, it's a nautical unit of measure that's equal to one-tenth of a nautical mile or a hundred fathoms. I did not know anything about uh, the term fathom until about uh, four or five years ago when my wife and I uh, spent a day uh, visiting uh, Jamestown in, the, in Virginia's historic triangle. But for those of you who don't know what a fathom is, it's a unit of length for measuring depth of water and not to get off uh, track here but um, what uh, my wife and I did learn a few years back when we were uh, learning about fathoms was that when um, the Susan Constant the Godspeed and the Discovery all came into a uh, Jamestown or what we know is is the actual Jamestown site what they didn't realize was that uh, they were going into uh, shallower waters 
and by doing so, they accidentally destroyed um, multiple oyster reef beds. So sadly, um, the Indians uh, that were uh, living there, most notably the Paspahague Nation, Paspahague, some people say Paspahague, they were part of the greater uh, Powhatan Confederacy that was comprised almost of uh, 14,000 Indians and roughly 32 tribes, or between 30 and 35 tribes, I should say it best. But when the uh, three ships came in, they didn't realize just how... Um, how shallow the waters were. So um, I think it is fair to say that they would have um, conducted uh, what would have been um, a fathom in determining um, the depth of the water, but at the same time, little did they realize below that there were oyster bed reefs that were in uh, grave peril. Uh, we also did learn that um, that if um, after a, a fathom... Um, experiment or um, or a task involving um, measuring uh, water depth had been completed when they brought up uh, the rope and the more uh, sediment there was on the rope that's when they began to realize that they were in uh, shallower waters uh, the less sediment there was on the rope meant that um, that waters were deep enough to where the ships could still navigate through so, you know, it's one thing for uh, Perry, I should get, getting back to what we're talking about, it's one thing for Oliver Perry's uh, crew to um, want to attack the enemy or plan to attack the enemy up close. But if you go fully up close, if you go fully up close, your ships might uh, take on a lot more damage not just the big guns in Lawrence and Niagara, but your other uh, smaller guys, by uh, engaging the enemy um, at half cable um, length, you're giving yourself enough space to where you can um, fire shots, but you don't have to fire everything right away. That's just my uh, approach to it. I'm not a um, naval expert, but I'm giving you all the best um, reasoning that I can uh, provide you guys with. American uh, gunboats with 32 long pounders placed at 120 yards. This is just a scenario here, but if American gunboats with 32 long pounders placed at 120 yards, if they were not stationed or positioned within the best uh, range, given they would be near British uh, carronades. So in other words, you don't want your um, ships with 32 long pounders uh, placed at 120 yards because they, if you did, then they would not be in the best range uh, given that they would be near enemy uh, ships with uh, carronades. So sometimes it's best to have a little bit more distance so this way you won't be so um, automatically vulnerable to uh, taking heavy uh heavy firing that can result in significant damage right away to where the battle would be over before you knew it. Now, this uh, last component to um, for this uh, podcast uh, segment episode is, uh, I mean, not, I'm not saying that what I, what I have uh, already covered in this episode wasn't important. It was. But this, to me, is even more important because... We, I know most of you have heard of this phrase that I will mention, 
but even the phrase alone has a story onto itself that needs to be told that most of you probably have never been told about. The only thing that you've probably gotten was in was through the textbooks. But here we go, folks. It's here we go with um, with getting information and how about doing a little debunking as well. Prior to or come time around the eve of September 10th, what exactly did Oliver Perry show his senior officers? He showed them a flag, folks, but it was not an ordinary one, but rather it was a flag that was better described as a fighting flag. You know, fighting flag to me is one that's got you know, extreme purpose. It has a, um, it has a, um, an imperative, I don't know if imperative is the right word, but it has a um, fundamental identity. This fighting flag had recently been sewn in Erie. The fighting flag which Perry presented contained the following phrase, don't give up the ship. I know all of you have probably heard of that phrase. The majority of you have. Matter of fact, when my wife and I were in Ohio at um, South Bass Island, uh, Putin Bay, we went into a gift shop and uh, I saw a shirt that says "Don't give." That said, "Don't give up the ship." I knew I had to get that right away. Not because of the phrase so much. Yes, the phrase is important. But from a historical standpoint, there's a reason why the phrase don't give up the ship um, existed, not only then, but why it should not be forgotten today. And I'll tell you all why here shortly. Well, let me ask you this. True or false, did Oliver Perry come up with the phrase don't give up the ship? False, he didn't. If Oliver Perry didn't... Um, coined the phrase, don't give up the ship. Who did? How about uh, a man named Captain James Lawrence? I think we might be getting on to something here, folks. Don't, don't the Americans have a flag? They have two flagships. I mean, the British do too, but don't the Americans have two flagships? The Niagara and the Lawrence. I'm wondering if there's a connection between that ship and uh, Captain James Lawrence. Well, Captain James Lawrence commanded the USS Chesapeake in a single ship match, in a single ship match up versus HMS Shannon. Captain Lawrence left port, and he departed from Boston, Massachusetts, on June first, eighteen thirteen. Shortly after his uh, departure from uh, Boston on June first of eighteen thirteen, that same day. He became engaged in um, naval combat against the British frigate HMS Shannon. HMS Shannon was smaller, not super small, but was just a tad bit smaller than um, than USS Chesapeake. For you know, it's easy to think that the big ships always prevail over the ships that are a little bit smaller, but I think we ought to be reminded that that's not always the case. Well, the British frigate HMS Shannon prevailed. Uh, she did break apart and did um, 
and did dismantle the Chesapeake with tense gunfire. The Chesapeake was still standing afloat. She hadn't been completely dismantled, but she did take on some uh, pretty heavy damage, in large part because of HMS Shannon's firings, or gunfire, I should say. The gunfire was so bad, folks, that it resulted in uh, mortally wounding Captain James Lawrence. Mortally wounding, folks. That means he's out of action. But he's also got officers below him that will have to carry on the uh, task of um, trying to um, rally the uh, sail- rally uh, the crew. Moments after Lawrence was wounded, he instructed his officers with the following remark. Listen carefully, folks. Don't give up the ship. Fight her till she sinks. Folks, that was what, um, that is the gentleman whom said that famous phrase, don't give up the ship, on top of, fight her till she sinks. What does this mean, folks? How could you interpret it? Or how would you want me to interpret it? Well, in other words, if I were uh, Captain James Lawrence, besides saying, don't give up the ship and fight her till she sinks, I would have said, such other things as, don't surrender just yet. The ship might be damaged, but don't go down without a fight. Use every resource, capability. There is um, left to fire upon the enemy. Show the enemy that the ship is comprised of men versus boys. If we were to lose, then at least know we lost without excuses. Sadly, folks, Captain James Lawrence died from his wounds on June 4th, 1813, at just age 31. That's a very young age to lose your life. Back in 1813, to die at age 31 was just as young as it is today. Captain James Lawrence, folks, was born in 1781. Matter of fact, he was born um, either just before the siege of Yorktown began or just right after the siege of Yorktown had ended. So you think about when he was brought into the world that the Revolutionary War was almost at its end and that British General Lord Charles Cornwallis was about to do something unthinkable that the British never thought could be done. Surrender to General George Washington at Yorktown, knowing that Cornwallis had been pretty much cut off by the French fleet under Admiral Comte de Grasse. So, yes, Captain James Lawrence dies at age 31. Sadly, though, his fellow crewmen were not spared by the British. His fellow crewmen and officers whom survived aboard USS Chesapeake, were sent to Halifax, Nova Scotia, prisoners of war. And Halifax, Nova Scotia, folks, was even a a common place during the American Revolutionary War for uh, prisoners of war to be sent to on the American side. It was also a haven for loyalists who most notably fled uh, from Boston, Massachusetts to uh, go to uh, Halifax, Nova Scotia, just shy of... um, I want to say about 1,500 loyalists from Boston left the city of Boston in March of 1776 after the siege had ended to start a new life in Halifax, Nova Scotia. So uh, 
Nova Scotia has been no strangers when it has come to um, loyalties on a partisan level as well as to uh, prisoners of war. Following uh, Captain uh, James Lawrence's death, Oliver Perry ordered a large blue battle ensign, which entailed the phrase, Don't give up the ship. Folks, is it fair to say that Perry is going to use this on his flagship vessel? Yes, this has to serve as a rally cry that, look, the Battle of Lake Erie is going can be best summed up as victory or death. In other words, if we prevail, the British, not only do we have the upper hand, not only will we have the upper hand, but the British will uh, eventually just leave Lake Erie all for good, once and for all. If, they, if we lose, then, then this phrase, don't give up the ship, won't have any symbolical meaning. We're not talking about the flagship. We're talking about the whole fleet, all nine ships. Because all nine ships, you know, need to uh, be able to go head to toe with um, Lieutenant Barclay's fleet of six. But we need to be able to stick it to the British by letting them know that, you know, we have been able to prove that we've been able to go head to toe on uh, foreign, on on water, on the oceans. Now we can do it on the Great Lakes. Well, we've covered a lot of ground here, and uh, when I'm on the air again next, folks, the big news is that when I'm on the air again next, folks, we're going to get into the Battle of Lake Erie. We're going to actually start getting into the core of the Battle of Lake Erie. It'll probably be a, a two-part um, episode uh, series on the actual Battle of Lake Erie, but I definitely look forward to being back on the air, but when when it has there been a time when I've never when I didn't look forward to being back on the air uh, I don't believe that has ever been the case but uh, thank you again for being such ardent listeners and definitely be reminded that um, while we are um, I don't know how much better off we are compared to 22 years ago this date but we still have to be vigilant and yes it is unfortunate to know that there are still people out in the world who do want to um, do harm regardless of nation but um but let's give thanks to those uh, men and women aboard flight 93 whom uh, paid the ultimate sacrifice that day 22 years ago by saving so many lives so uh thank you again and uh, wherever you all may live continue to stay safe